Inconvenient. Adjective. Causing trouble, difficulties, or discomfort. Truth. Noun. The quality or state of being true. When something causes us trouble, gives us difficulty, or produces discomfort, we avoid it. But what happens when we can't? What happens when those things come from our relationship with God? What happens when those things that are so inconvenient are also unavoidably true? This summer, we take a look at truths that we'd rather avoid. Truths about human dignity, sexuality, relationships, our work, and our money. This summer, we explore inconvenient truths. Good to be here. Wasn't sure if they were done or not. So, my name is Joe Slater, and greetings from Covenant Presbyterian Church up in Harrisonburg. I don't know if any of you or how many of you know the history of this church, but Covenant is the grandmother, or I'm not sure the gender, but Covenant planted Tabernacle, which planted Holy Cross, and so. Um, I, I come from Covenant there in Harrisonburg. One of the things that has us there in Harrisonburg is JMU. I am a uh, RUF pastor there at J- JMU, which RUF stands for Reformed University Fellowship. We're about to begin our second year. First year went as well as I could have imagined. God is doing some great things, bringing a lot of students who are hungry for the Word of God and hungry for um, the, the kingdom of God there at James Madison. So think of it this way. Our, our churches are gathered into a region, a, a network of churches here in our region called our presbytery. don't know how many of you have heard of that idea, but our presbytery then calls pastors, and one of the, one of the places or ways or, or uh, venues they call pastors to are to the college campus. So that's what I do. I am a pastor and a missionary to James Madison University. So it's a, it's a joy and a privilege to be here with you all. That's where I'm coming from. Maybe a few other notes that would be good to know about me. I'm a father. I've got five kids and a husband. I have one of those wives, um, and she's right there, um, Terry, and um, blessed to have her here with me. And we've been married 26 years. Yeah, that's crazy. We just celebrated our 26th. So. Um, those of you who have hit that mark, you, you probably relate to this. You go, how am I old enough to have been married 26 years? It's crazy. Um, but yes, it's true. So um, that's going to be pertinent because we are talking about marriage today. Um, so let, let me kind of lay some groundwork or give you some assumptions I'm operating on because I will not have time to unpack these assumptions. Um, on one hand, I was going, thank you, Rick Gilmartin, for bringing me down into a series called Inconvenient Truths. I get to say some hard things to you. Thank you, Rick, for taking vacation. However, I've spun it just a little bit. I get to pull the pin on the grenade, hand it to you all, and let Rick deal with the fallout, right? Because I'm going to be gone after this week. So um, hopefully it won't be quite that bad. Um, But here, we're talking about marriage and a few assumptions that are going to be important for you at least to understand whether you agree or not. That's up to you. But a few assumptions I'm working on um, to to have our discussion here from Ephesians chapter 5. First, Genesis 1-1, very first book of your Bible, very first verse of your Bible, has these four words. In the beginning, 
God. In the beginning, God. I don't know of four words that are more pregnant with meaning and implication than those four words. God created everything out of nothing. God brought all of this into being. All of creation, every institution, every organization, every family, every person. And the implication then is God is our ultimate authority. So when He speaks, we do well to listen. And so when it comes to marriage, and God does have a lot to say about marriage, and you're hearing, or you're about to hear from Ephesians 5, some of what He has to say about marriage, we're hearing from the in the beginning God. We take our cues in terms of boundaries, design, uh, purposes for marriage from God. Because He's the one who instituted this. He's the one who created it. That's the first assumption. The second assumption, despite the current cultural wave of belief, I will be operating on the understanding that God's design for marriage is to be between man and woman. Scripture makes that abundantly clear, both in how he designed marriage, and we're going to look at, or at least reference, three passages that speak to his design, but also in what he prohibits. So, abundantly clear in Scripture, and again, that's a discussion for another time, but that is an assumption upon which I'm going to build today. Third, by focusing on marriage today, please know that I am not relegating singleness to some kind of second-class status. I don't believe that. And Scripture does not teach that. Please do not hear me say that marriage is some kind of heaven. (laughs) I thought I might get a giggle or two. It is not. We're not there yet. Is it good? Yes. And hopefully we'll exalt some of the goodness that God intended for marriage. But we're not there yet. And not only is marriage a gift, but the Apostle Paul speaks of singleness as a gift. We're going to center on this idea of marriage because that's where this passage centers. But please don't hear me exalting marriage to some place it does not have and relegating singleness to some lower place that it does not belong. I would also beg those of you who are single not to tune me out. Because if your understanding or your perspective of marriage is biblical, you know married people. And God will use you to bless them and influence them with your biblical perspective of marriage. Not only that, God may be preparing you for a marriage. I don't know, you don't know. But God may be preparing you And then thirdly, a lot of these principles that we're going to talk about today have transfer or parallels to relationships that you carry on at work, friendships with your neighbor. So a a lot of what we're going to say today will carry into other relationships. God's Word speaks to us in so many ways. So those are the assumptions upon which we will build Let me do this. I don't know what the practice is here, but if this isn't the practice, I'm going to go ahead and break with your practice. Um, Let's stand for the reading of Scripture if you're able. Um, Again, to honor God's Word and in recognition that we 
stand under the Word of God. It is the ultimate authority and these are the most important words you will hear today from the Word of God. Ephesians 5, chapter chapter 5, verses 22-33. And the, the passage is printed there in your bulletin as well and also on the screen. The Word of God. Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its Savior. Now as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her having cleansed her by the washing of water with the Word, so that He might present the church to Himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. And in the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ does the church, because we are members of His body." Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound, and I am saying that it refers to Christ and the church. However, let each of you, each one of you, love his wife as himself, and let the wife see that she respects her husband. Pray with me. God, as we come to your word, we tremble at Your Word because You are the God who has created everything and You stand and You rule and You reign over everything. So Lord, give us hearts that are submissive to Your Word. Give us ears that are open to hearing from Your Word. And Lord God, we pray that You would come and speak to us. And because of Your speaking to us today, would You transform us? Would You make us more like Jesus? That is what the world needs and that is what we need to be made like Jesus. So come and by your Spirit, do this work. Do it for the glory of your name and for the good of your people. And we pray it in Christ's name. Amen. And you may be seated. We're going to kind of look at three different things that the Apostle Paul says here in Ephesians chapter 5. First is that marriage is covenantal. Second, marriage is sacrificial. And then third, marriage is metaphorical. Covenantal, sacrificial, and metaphorical. I'm not necessarily going to go from start to finish, from 22 down to 33. Um, For for one thing, I think there's a, a verse right in the middle of this, in verse 31, that is huge and kind of sets the parameters for marriage. And that's why I'm going to start out with covenantal. We see it here in verse 31, but God brings it also to Genesis chapter 2 in Matthew chapter 19, where the Scripture says, Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. And then in Matthew 19, Jesus adds these words, so they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. So I hear in that, part of God's design in marriage is that marriage be covenantal. And there are two ideas here in this verse. 
that kind of support that idea of marriage being covenantal, and they are that in marriage we become one flesh, and in marriage we hold fast to each other. We become one flesh and we hold fast to each other. Becoming one. This is something that that we actively enter into in marriage. And something that requires a leaving behind of other things. Did you notice in verse 31, he says, for this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother. That relationship that is most natural, most intimate, the longest relationship you've had, yes, even that, you leave that behind to become one flesh as husband and wife. So we leave behind close relationships. And I would also add, maybe our favorite hobby, maybe that 80-hour-a-week job, maybe those secret sins. If those things are causing your marriage to suffer or to stumble, you leave them behind for the sake of your marriage. For this cause, a man shall leave his father and mother, and the two become one flesh. You enter into, you care about their joys, their pains, their griefs, their dreams, their heart. You actively pursue those things as you actively pursue your spouse in becoming one flesh. And then there's the holding fast. And as I said, Jesus added even this phrase, therefore what God has joined together, let not man separate. See, this union is based on promises. That's why we do the vows at wedding services. And when you stand before God and witnesses and you take those vows, that sounds something like this, for better or for worse, for richer or for poorer, in sickness and in health, till death do us part. God expects you, God expects us to mean it. These are not just quaint sayings that we pull out on our wedding day. They are vows and they are covenantal promises that we make before God and others. And in these promises, in this covenant, we are saying that come what may, I am in this. I will hold fast to you. Marriage is intended to be covenantal. See, here's the problem. I think in our day, we tend to treat this covenant more like a contract as opposed to a covenant. Let me illustrate the difference to you. Brandon, right? Do you have a cell phone? Okay. Who's your service provider? Sprint. All right. Let's suppose, Brandon, that um, you stop paying Sprint. What would the fine folks at Sprint do? they would cut off your service. Or let's suppose, Brandon, you discovered one day, my phone's not working. And you called Sprint on someone else's phone and you said, hey, I'm not getting service anymore. Yeah, we just decided we're not going to do that anymore. Would you continue to send your money in? You would not. Relationship over, right? Because your relationship, you're a smart man, relationship with Sprint is contractual. They provide a service, and you provide a service for them. No more service, no more relationship. But this is not marriage. And yet I've heard many times as I've counseled couples who come 
And, and basically what they say to me is, they're not making me happy anymore. And what they've said to me is, my spouse provides a service for me. And they're in my office because they're about to end their marriage. And this whole concept of marriage for them is based on the idea of contract, not covenant. That's not how Scripture talks about marriage. Scripture talks about marriage as a covenant. Your love for your spouse is to be like the love of Christ for His people. You see that throughout this Ephesians 5 passage. And His love is not, was never, and will never be based on our merit or on services provided. Nor should yours be in marriage. Here's the harsh reality. Your spouse will fail you. They will let you down. They will disappoint you. They will even sin against you. And yet, you are still called to love as Christ loves His people. As Christ loves His bride. God provides only two grounds for divorce. Sexual unfaithfulness and abandonment by an unbelieving spouse. Apart from these, marriage is a covenant that is not to be broken. And that's why Paul in this passage, that's why Genesis 2, that's why Matthew 19 says, Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. What God has joined together, let no man separate. Marriage is covenantal. And it is sacrificial. Now, there's a chance I've already lost some of you on that sacrificial word. Because our culture does not do sacrifice very well, do we? We tend to believe something, and we believe that something might be God's will for us right up to the point where it might involve pain. And then we tend to forget or outright reject Jesus' words, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. Mark chapter 8. In marriage, there will be sacrifice. And lots of it. By God's design, this sacrificial love is to be lived out in distinct roles for husband and wife. Wives are to sacrifice in their submitting to their husbands. You see that twice here in this passage in verse 22 and in verse 24. To sum this idea of submission sounds crazy, antiquated, unfair, maybe even chauvinistic. But I would suggest to you these are misunderstandings of what God commands in submission. Because in this command of submission, the Scripture, God, speak nothing of worth or value but rather it speaks to the role that God has given to wives. And there's a parallel in Jesus. Just as Christ submitting to the will of the Father and going to the cross spoke nothing of His worth or His value. Think about that. He was fully God. The second person of the Trinity. It spoke rather to His purpose. To His role. He was fully God of equal in worth and value to the Father. And yet, He submitted by going to the cross. Why? Because that was His role. That was His purpose in redemption. Was to come, live a perfect life, go and die that death on the cross for imperfect and unrighteous people like you and like me. So it spoke to the role that Jesus would live out in redemption. 
And so it is with the role of submission for wives. It has nothing to do with their worth or their value before God, and it has everything to do with their role designed by and given by God. So what is it? What do we mean by submission? John Piper explains it this way. Submission is the divine calling of a wife to honor and affirm her husband's leadership and help carry it through according to her gifts. Let me say that again. Submission is the divine calling of a wife to honor and affirm her husband's leadership and to help carry it through according to her gifts. And I would add Paul's two qualifiers here from Ephesians chapter 5. In verse 22, we see that she's to submit as to the Lord. And then in verse 24, she's to submit in everything. What does Paul mean? As to the Lord. Wives, in submitting to your husbands, think about this. You submit to the Lord. You can do this joyfully even when it's hard because ultimately you're submitting to the Lord. He set these roles up. He set up this authority. And by submitting to that authority, you submit to your Father in heaven. And then that second qualifier, you can do so in everything, meaning this command reaches to all aspects of your marriage. Short of sin, right? You understand that. Like, you don't have to follow him into sin. But you can follow or you can submit in everything in all aspects of your marriage. Wives, this is your God given calling in marriage. Husbands are to sacrifice in leading their wives. And this is what the scripture means here in Ephesians chapter 5 when it says, For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church. So, what do we mean by headship? Again, I'll refer to John Piper. Headship is the divine calling of a husband to take primary responsibility for Christ like servant leadership, protection, and provision in the home. Again, headship is the divine calling of a husband. To take primary responsibility for Christ-like servant leadership, protection, and provision in the home. And Paul adds a qualifier here as to how we're to lead. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. And it repeats this idea twice more in verse 28 and in verse 33. So question, husbands, how are we to love our wives? You can go ahead and answer me. As Christ loved the church. How did Christ love the church? Go ahead and answer me. By by giving Himself up for her. There is no room, absolutely no room for that caricature of a dictator kind of headship or a, a headship of dictatorship. I preached from this passage one wedding that I did many, many years ago. And I heard the story of one of the relatives who heard what I had to say about submission and headship. Um, And and it was from the reception. And this relative was sitting down. Wife was standing up just above him. And he said to his wife, Yo, Ribby! Because I had also referred to the Genesis 2 where God created man out of the, the rib of Adam. The husband said to his wife, Yo, Ribby! Go get me a drink. And the wife was like, Where is this coming from? And he said, you heard what the pastor said. You're to submit to me. So, yo, Ribby, go get me a drink. That is not what we're talking about. And it was in that New York accent, by the way. 
Harsh, demanding dictator leadership is not biblical headship. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave Himself up for her. But it's also not passive disengagement, which I'm just as concerned about that in our culture as I am the other, maybe more so. It is not passive disengagement. Husbands, you and I do not have the luxury of backing away from or being ignorant of or abdicating responsibility in any area of your marriage. Instead, husbands, you're to sacrifice by leading and loving as Christ led and loved His bride, the church. It is a role of active servanthood, not dictatorship. Now, maybe a thousand questions going on in your head right now. What does this look like? Let me give you some sense of what this looks like in our marriage, albeit very imperfect marriage. There are many areas of our marriage and home life that Terry is far more qualified to care for. And in those areas, I've delegated those responsibilities to her and she runs them like an expert. And I praise God for her and her gifts in our marriage. And there are other areas I oversee and care for. And we talk often, maybe even daily, about those different areas to get advice, to hear the counsel, to hear the thoughts, to help us lead and serve in our family. And yet, final responsibility is given to me as the husband for decisions for our home and our marriage. To arrive at those decisions, we talk, we pray together, If we're not on the same page, we wait until we can get to the same page. If we have that luxury of waiting, we might get outside counsel and we decide. And I can probably count on one hand in these 26 years the number of times we've been at an impasse and where staying at the status quo was unacceptable. And we just had to make a decision. We had to move off that spot. And I'll also tell you, on that one hand, those five or less times, It wasn't like I approached that and said, yeah, I'm going to do what I want. There's been a few times where I've said, I don't know. I kind of feel this way. She kind of feels this way. But honestly, deep down, I trust her more in this area. So I'm going with her. But a decision had to be made. We had to move off of that impasse. Someone had to decide. And that was my God-given, that is our God-given role as head of our home. I was talking to Terry about this this past week and and I realized a lot of the instances I was thinking about as I was thinking through this came down to decisions, but it it plays into more than just decisions that had to be made. Another way this plays out is where Terry or I might see a weakness in our, our family life or in our marriage. It's my responsibility as head of the home to see to the solution and her responsibility to help and support in the solution. Does that make sense? And so here's an example maybe to help it make sense. We go through seasons of doing well and doing not so well in family worship, in teaching our kids the scriptures. Um, Part of it is it's it's a moving target. Like when our kids were three and four and five, doing certain things and teaching our kids the scriptures worked and were applicable that now that they're in college, yeah, you kind of have to change it in how you end up doing family worship. 
But to not be growing in the Scriptures together as a family was not acceptable. And so when I realized, oh, we're in this down spot, it's not going well, in fact, we're not even doing it, what this looks like is, I realized, man, this isn't good, and I am, I'm on point for this as head of the home. So I talked to Terry and say, is this a problem? She says, yeah, it is a problem. Well, let's talk about this. How can, this, how can we improve in this? And so I'm getting her counsel, and I'd be a fool not to. And might even use her gifts in that. If we want to involve singing, definitely we should use her gifts in that. Because no one wants to hear me sing or play the piano, and she does both of those quite well. So in marriage, wife, you don't check your gifts, you don't check your brain, you don't check your strengths at the door. Husband, you nourish those and you invite those into the process. But as head of our home, that responsibility is on me to see to it that in that area, we're growing in Christ's likeness and we're growing together toward the Lord and toward His purposes. Picture it this way. Marriage is like a beautiful dance. Some parts of the dance are choreographed. Some parts of the dance are improvised. If both lead, what do you have? What do you have? It's a disaster, isn't it? It's not pretty. If one leads and the other follows, it's beautiful. And both succeed. When each dancer fulfills their role, both experience the joy and the beauty of that dance. And marriage is this glorious dance where God has given distinct roles to husband and to wife. And in these roles, we give ourselves in sacrificial love for the good of the other and the glory of God in our marriage. Husbands and wives, will you step up to your God-given role in marriage? And are you willing to die to yourself and love God and love your spouse in the way that He's called you to love? Biblical marriages are covenantal, they're sacrificial, but they're also metaphorical. And here's what I mean by that. Toward the end of our text here in Ephesians 5, Paul adds the following commentary as he speaks about marriage. He says it in these words, This mystery is profound, and I am saying that it refers to Christ and the church. You see, God designed marriage to be a metaphor for His union with His bride, the church. As we've read through this passage, have you noticed how many times Paul goes back and forth between husband and wife and Christ and His bride, the church? It's almost like he can't help himself. He gives instructions on marriage and then he goes back to, oh, but this is about Christ and His bride, the church. And why would we be surprised at that? What other relationship could possibly capture the depth, the intimacy, the indescribable love that Jesus has for His people? Do you want to know how much Jesus loves you? Look at the best marriage you know of. It's a little bit like that. A little bit. That marriage that you're thinking of, that best marriage that you know of, is just a small, very blurred glimpse at the love of Christ for you, His people. Does your marriage reflect the love of Jesus for His people? Don't answer that out loud, but I really do want you to answer that. If you're here and you're married, does your marriage 
reflect the love of Christ for his people. And as you answer that question, what would need to change in your marriage for you to answer yes to that question? And let me encourage you to repent of those things and ask God to change you. I think God would love to answer that prayer. And then as He changes you, begin to walk in obedience and faith. There's hope for your marriage because God's in it. You're united to Christ. Our marriages are not only to be a metaphor of the love of Jesus for His people, but it's the very love of Jesus that molds and motivates us in our marriages. And here's what I mean. If you've been listening and if you're honest, you know that you can't pull this off on your own strength. We've been called to something unbelievably impossible apart from Christ. We're sinful. We're weak. We're insufficient for how we're to live and love and marriage. We need Jesus. But see, here, here's the good news. In Him, we're forgiven where we sin. We're strengthened in our weaknesses. And we have His Spirit living in us to enable us to live and to love like Christ in our marriages. Last thought. Romans 8.32, same author, by the way, Paul, asked this question, He who did not spare His own Son but gave Him up for us all, how will He not also along with Him graciously give us all things? How will He not also along with Christ graciously give us all things? That question is emphatically rhetorical. Paul is saying He will give us all that we need if He gave us His Son. The life, the death, and the resurrection of Jesus are proof that we have all that we need for marriages that are to be covenantal, sacrificial, and metaphorical. And so people of God live in this hope and in this promise. Let's pray. God, we thank You and we praise You for this high calling of marriage. Thank You for how You bless us in it. Thank You for how You forgive us, how You enable us and You strengthen us because You have called us to something huge that's beyond us. And so we pray, O Lord, that You would be at work in us and through us to love our husbands, love our wives. Lord, for those of us who are single, would You help us to love You and cling tightly to You? And if You should bless us in marriage, would You help us to be this kind of faithful husband and wife? Lord, if You call us to a life of singleness, would You help us to love and faithfully serve You with all of our days? And Lord, would You bless our church? Would You bless our land? Bless our world with marriages that are covenantal, that are sacrificial, and that are living metaphors of Your love for Your bride? the church. And in all this, would you be glorified, we pray. In Christ's name, amen.